You're listening to KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m., and it's time for KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Briar Patch Food Co-op. Featuring an in-house deli and bakery, a sustainable meat and fish department, also organic produce from local farms. Offering curbside pickup at 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley. Briarpatch.coop and Nevada County Public Health, partnering and coordinating with local healthcare providers to distribute COVID-19 vaccines to Nevada County residents. Detailed information at mynevadacounty.com slash coronavirus slash vaccine or 833-DIAL-211. Coming up, we bring you NPR headlines followed by regional weather, then this week's edition of Bravehearts. Paul Emery speaks with Nevada County Housing Director Brendan Phillips about the challenges in providing housing for homeless people in the time of COVID, then national native news, and we close our newscast with an essay by Molly Fisk. At 6.30, we bring you the Energy Report with Martin Webb, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Here are today's NPR headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is ordering government health insurance markets to reopen for a special sign-up window. The move offering Americans help with medical coverage at a time COVID-19 deaths are rising and coronavirus vaccines, while rolling out, are still not widely available. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says it's part of an executive order that includes the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. The Department of Health and Human Services will open healthcare.gov for a special enrollment period from February 15th to May 15th. And just as a reminder, the prior administration only had it open for six weeks, so this is double that length of time. Biden also instructed his administration to consider reversing other Trump health care policies, including curbs on abortion counseling and the imposition of work requirements for low-income people getting Medicaid. State health officials in New York are downplaying a report that found they undercounted the number of nursing home residents who've died during the coronavirus pandemic. As NPR's Brian Mann explains, the investigation was conducted by New York State's Attorney General. New York AG Letitia James found the official count of nursing home deaths issued by state public health officials during the pandemic was low, off by roughly 50 percent. Republicans are accusing Governor Andrew Cuomo of trying to cover up the number of seniors who died, and many Democrats are also demanding more transparency. In a statement, Cuomo's top health officials said there was no effort to hide nursing home death rates. Dr. Howard Zucker blamed the discrepancy on New York's method of reporting coronavirus fatalities by the location where the person died, not by their residence. That means seniors who died after being taken to the hospital weren't included in the count of nursing home deaths. Brian Mann, NPR News. General Motors says it plans to stop selling gas-powered vehicles in the U.S. by 2035. As Alex McLennan of member station WDET reports, it's part of the automaker's goal of being carbon neutral by 2040. GM is already laying the groundwork to bring 30 electric models to market by mid-decade. Paul Eisenstein, publisher of automotive website TheDetroitBureau.com, says the move fits into the automaker's global strategy. China is already General Motors' largest market, and they know that that market is going electric 
very quickly. So they're really going to need as much as anything to meet expectations in China as they will here, here in the United States. The automaker's pledge comes as the industry faces a global shortage of microchips, a crucial component in electric vehicles. GM recently announced a deal that will see U.S.-based Qualcomm supply chips for its next-gen fleet. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. Sales of new homes were up slightly last month. The Commerce Department reporting today sales of new homes rose 1.6%. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street. The Dow was up 300 points today. You're listening to NPR. American Airlines has canceled more than 100 flights today because of a maintenance issue with planes operated by its regional carrier, PSA Airlines. In a statement, an American Airlines spokesman says PSA Airlines has temporarily removed most of its aircraft from service in order to complete a necessary standard inspection on the nose gear door. We're working with PSA and the FAA to immediately address the issue. PSA is a wholly owned subsidiary of American and flies under the American Eagle brand name. The vast majority of sharks worldwide are at risk of extinction. That's according to a new study. Decades of overfishing has been taking a toll, as NPR's Lauren Summer reports. Shark and ray populations have plummeted since 1970, falling by 70 percent globally. That's due to fishing pressure, because sharks are harvested for their fins. It's also because sharks are often bycatch, trapped by nets and fishing lines that are meant to catch other animals. As a result, three-quarters of shark species are close to extinction, according to a study in the journal Nature. The authors say immediate action is needed because sharks lack protections in many countries. Sharks are known as a keystone species meaning their survival is crucial to the health of entire ecosystems. Lauren Summer, NPR News. Even with many bars and restaurants shuttered, one segment of the alcoholic beverage market that continued to do well last year, American whiskey. That's according to a report from a distilled spirits group, which says combined U.S. sales for bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, and rye whiskey rose 8.2% last year to $4.3 billion. The Distilled Spirits Council of America issued the report. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada city area, looks like we'll have a low of 35 tonight, high of 42 tomorrow, rain and snow tonight and tomorrow, partly cloudy Saturday and Sunday with more rain and snow likely early next week. In Sacramento, we'll have a low of 43 tonight, high of 53 tomorrow, showers tonight, partly cloudy over the weekend, and in Truckee, 18 tonight, 33 tomorrow, snow tonight, partly cloudy over the weekend with rain and snow early next week. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. Hello, everybody. This is Betty Louise, and I'm happy to say that I'm here with my partner, William Wallace. And we have a couple of really interesting people to catch their story, uh, Gail and David. And they both have a story about homelessness. If you were to see Gail and David walking down the street, 
there is no way you would believe that they were homeless. So they are the best homeless people they can be. <laughs> yeah, this, this isn't how they look, no. So the other thing that we like to highlight is what you have found helpful in this community of Nevada County. Have you used some of the support services? What, what have you found helpful? Well, I went uh, to the county and I got on the HUD list. I got on dial 211 and David and I are both registered. I went over to, what is the, uh, what is the? Freed? Yeah, I went over to Freed to see if they had any kind of programs, not only for, for David, but for me. And since David's a vet, I was hoping that there might be something. If it wouldn't work for me, it would work for him. Um, to be quite frank, I didn't go to a hospitality house, and the reason for that was I had a car. I had a, a Neil Quasi home, and there were people who didn't, who were out in the elements, unprotected, and I decided that that, that was, I didn't want to take up space for someone who was going to have to be out in the elements and, and suffering. I mean, it's cold enough in your car. You don't have any right. idea how cold it can get in your car until you, you have to, yeah. But, um, uh, and I haven't found too many services. I've asked the question, and whenever I got a, 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 a hint where I could go, I would go there. But um, and it's encouraging to me to see what's happening now in the county. It's really important that people be aware of the of the of the depth of the all-encompassing group of people that homelessness uh, includes. Uh, and once there's an understanding, then the people if they're moved in their hearts, then, then all they have to do is be moved in their hearts. And if you have enough people who, who are coming from that place, things will just serendipitously open up. It has to be a, 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 a group effort to be open-hearted. Now, as in any culture or any group of people, there are those that, that are self-serving and manipulative. But that's certainly not true of very many that I've come across. Uh, I would I would be supportive of more of, of more compassion and opening up opportunities. There are people who have, for instance, who have spaces. They have extra granny units. They have you know, and they keep them open. For for you know when their family comes to visit, which is all very nice, but there are there are peace, there are places where if you get the right person in who is respectful and whatnot, it gives them you know give at a reasonable price. But they're here in our county now, community now. There's very little space for people who are struggling financially, whether they're working or not. So yeah, I I, I think there's room for a whole lot more. And, and I bless the people who have been working so diligently in spite of things, not because of things. Well, thank you for that very honest answer. That's what we're looking for here. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities. 
a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. I'm speaking with Brendan Phillips. He's housing resource manager for Nevada County. And Brendan, it's been a while since we've talked. But the I think it was this time last year. It probably sounds just about right. And of course we don't run into each other on the streets anymore. Um, hopefully that'll change soon. But you know, we have a really unusual situation right now. I know Nevada County and, and Grass Valley and, and Nevada City have always helped to provide emergency shelters for homeless folks during, you know, during tough weather. And that's what we've kind of been into for the last few days. But this has been pretty dramatically affected uh, by the COVID situation. Uh, And, you know, maybe there's not as many places available. Uh, Tell us about this. Tell us about what's going on here. Yeah, sure. I'm all over the county, whether it's an eastern county up in our Truckee region or here in western county where we have Sierra Roots who would run an emergency shelter for up to 30 people. Um, those shelters have all been impacted because of social distancing requirements. So when you have a, a small space like the Nevada City Veterans Hall and you're going to use it to um, provide what they call congregate sheltering, um, you, you have to maintain that social distancing, which definitely reduces the capacity. So we've got a capacity issue in all of the um, jurisdictions. And so, yeah, that's that's been a challenge. Um, and so, you know, we've we've been following in line with the state and implementing what they call non-congregate shelter operations, which are shelter operations where everyone has their own room, um, i.e. hotels. And so, uh, what is there like inventory of available um, places for people at this point in time uh, for emergency shelters? So, inventory would be I, I believe that the Sierra Root shelter can take up to 15 people, where it used so it's ha- cut in half. Um, Truckee is, is the same, though Truckee did find a bigger space. So, I think that they were able to expand capacity, but in line with having that social distancing requirement for, for the staff and for the, for the guests. Um, so, yeah, so inventory is, 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 you know, on the congregate side is low, but throughout this, we've been partnering with many um, also impacted by COVID hotel um, operations, and they've been very good partners in helping us find available rooms to place people, particularly people who are medically vulnerable and able to and unable to, um, you know, access traditional shelter because of medical conditions, which is a common thing among our homeless population. Now, there has been some good news in the housing uh, situation, and one of them is the conversion of a motel in Grass Valley on South Auburn Street into um um, somewhat temporary, but uh, adequate uh, living con- living situations for homeless people. And this is part of a statewide program that uh, Nevada County is helping out with. Uh, tell us about this. Yeah, so Project Home Key um, was launched by the state, providing funds to counties um, to acquire, you know, hotels. That in, 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 so I guess I'd say that while we were working on all this hoteling, stuff over since March, really, since COVID came around, 
um, we, you know, we worked with a lot of different providers and we found one that was lucky, luckily was looking to unload one of their operations. And that was the coaching for hotel. So we were able to quickly put together an application and get approved through the state for the purchase and for two years of operating costs. And that money, um, is going to a contracted provider who will manage the site and provide limited, you know, case management on site. Um, so that's the, that's the gist of that program. Now we're in the process, you know, acquisition happened in December. Um, the renovations began, um, quickly thereafter and the renovations are still in that process, but we have been able to move some folks in there and we've worked with Cross Valley very closely. Um, and we, we, um, are really targeting, um, families with children, seniors, people over the age of 62, uh, veterans and transitional age youth. Um, who are who are homeless and right now for example that operation has a number of families with little children or recently born children so you know there are uh, there's a wide variety of need and we need places for a lot of different kinds of people but right now we've just really wanted to make sure that you know particularly vulnerable families have a place to go and um we're, we're, we're moving along in that route. So we have about six rooms ready to go and we're working to incorporate new rooms every day. Um, we don't know. I, I, it's going to be hard to tell you exactly when the full occupancy will be going, but, but there, there, there's a lot of caveats to that, but we're, we're working very closely with the partner to get that project completely done in a couple of years. That project will be converted into affordable housing. Um, along with uh, some supportive housing units. So for people who need extra supportive services really all their life to stay housed, that'll be an opportunity and an option for them. So we're, we're really thankful for our, the city of Grass Valley, our partners at um, AMI Housing and the county who helped put that together. You know, Brendan, what was kind of interesting about this is uh, part of the process was, uh, you know, reaching out to the neighborhood for their acceptance. And this was widely accepted in the neighborhood around the the location. Uh, tell us about this. Well, yeah, we didn't receive a, a tremendous amount of, of negative feedback to that. But, you know, there are always concerns. And, and we believe we've selected a really good provider who can um, who's already begun the, the ability, you know, reaching out to neighbors. This is the ability for the neighborhoods and the neighbor people to be able to contact someone directly when they see issues. And we've agreed to a number and they've agreed to a number of rules for the occupants, you know, just to make sure that people aren't, um, you know, crossing the street to smoke cigarettes. So there's designated areas where they can be. Other things like that are, are all in the behavioral agreements so that people know that when they're there, they're also neighbors and good neighbor. Being a good neighbor is part of the program. So that's been very helpful. I, yeah, I did not. I did not. Um, we did not experience uh, the level of, of pushback that you know some communities I think probably did when these uh, kinds of programs are announced. Um, any other kind of uh, recent news that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, well, just you know that we're we're. I guess the most recent news to come from the state is that the stimulus funding that was uh, passed. Um, not long ago includes money for um, prevention um, assistance. And we're still figuring out how that's all going to work. But 
it is nice to know that in short order, we should be getting information on, uh, on a level of funding we will be receiving to ensure that people who are renters in our community aren't becoming the next wave of homeless folks. That's, that's what they refer to as prevention. So I think I, the only thing I can say to your listeners is stay tuned on that. I mean, we move as the state moves, so we have to, we, we have to put all the right pieces together. But um, that, that, that work is happening right now, and, and we should, in very short order, be able to go um, and talk about and, and, and provide um, the necessary uh, support to keep people from slipping into homelessness. I know that's going to be an issue coming up. Um, the state did extend the eviction moratorium, so that is always um, uh, important because, you know, we, we can't be penalizing people with an eviction based on failure to pay if they're impacted by this pandemic. So it's gotta be, um, we've gotta really be um, looking forward, looking for ways to prevent homelessness at all costs. Thank you so much, Brendan. Now, thanks for speaking with KVMR. Sure, no problem, thank you. I've been speaking with Brendan Phillips and he is housing resource manager for Nevada County. I'm Paul Emery for KVMR. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Biden administration says its order to pause new oil and gas leasing on public lands does not apply to tribal nations. The Mountain West News Bureau's Savannah Marr reports. The administration issued the clarification after the chairman of the Ute Indian tribe called the initial moratorium a direct attack on tribal sovereignty. Stephen Fasthorse of the Northern Arapaho Business Council agreed. Something like that would impact all of us oil and gas tribes uh, pretty bad. It would cripple us. Fast Horse says those tribes rely on oil and gas revenue to pay for social services. And unlike state and local governments, they don't have a tax base to fall back on. The issue is thornier for climate activists like Dallas Goldtooth with the nonprofit Indigenous Environmental Network. It's nice to see the administration recognize tribal sovereignty. It is disheartening to see tribes use that to continue fossil fuel extraction. Moving forward, Goldtooth hopes the Biden administration will support tribes in divesting from the fossil fuel industry. For National Native News, I'm Savannah Marr. This week, President Biden signed a memorandum on tribal consultation. It directs all executive departments and agencies to engage in regular consultation with tribes. Agencies have 90 days to come up with a plan. Tribal leaders across the country are welcoming the memo. In a statement, Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr., applauded the action. Hoskin says meaningful consultation is vital to tribal governments to have a seat at the table to shape policy and hold the federal government responsible. He says the memorandum is the first comprehensive White House affirmation of mandatory consultation with tribes since 2009. The tribal consultation follows directives laid out by the Obama administration. President Biden says he's committed to honoring tribal sovereignty and including tribal voices and policy and hopes to strengthen the government's relationship with tribes. This week, Washington U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell addressed President Biden's nominee for U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo, and talked about tribal broadband. Steve Jackson has more. 
Senator Cantwell introduced legislation last session that would accelerate the deployment of broadband services to tribal communities by setting aside FCC and USDA funds for deployment on tribal lands. At the confirmation hearing for Commerce Secretary, Cantwell made Governor Raimondo aware of the issue. And the Secretary will inherit a new program as part of the COVID bill, the Tribal Broadband Connectivity Program. Uh, A 2019 report from FCC found that less than half of households in Indian country have access to high-speed broadband services, a 20% gap from non-tribal areas. And so I hope that we will be able to get good administration of that program. The COVID pandemic has only increased the problem of limited broadband due to more people working from home as well as distance learning for students. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. Alaska Native artist and illustrator Michaela Goad was honored by the American Library Association this week with the Randolph Caldecott Medal. She's said to be the first Native American to win the award. A member of the Central Council of Clinkett and Haida Indian Tribes, Goad was recognized for most distinguished American picture book for children, We Are Water Protectors. The book, written by Carol Lindstrom, Turtle Mountain, honors water protectors for fighting for indigenous rights and environmental justice. Awards were announced during the association's virtual midwinter gathering. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. You're listening to KVMR's Evening Newscast. Coming up at 6.30, we bring you the Energy Report with Martin Webb, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out tonight's newscast, we have Molly Fisk with an essay. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. It's been a week, and people are still talking about the inaugural poem, as well as the incredible grace and facility of its writer, Amanda Gorman. She told Ellen DeGeneres that after she recited her poem and went back to the green room, she thought she'd check social media to see how people liked it. But her phone was a brick. All of her apps had crashed. She gained 2 million followers in 48 hours. Since poetry seldom gets a national spotlight, I want to surf on this wave a bit. First, let me say Amanda did not spring full-grown from the head of Joe Biden, which is a mythological reference to Athena and her dad Zeus that you can go look up. Amanda is from my home state, where we have a 60-year-old program called California Poets in the Schools that I and many poets have taught with. As a young child, poets came to her classroom to offer their love for language and rhythm combined. Also as a child, she had problems with speech, so she had to pay closer attention to forming words and saying them aloud than most of us do. Her diction, when she read to us last week, was as gorgeous as the words she spoke. Many news sources mentioned the way she drew from the work of other writers in her poem a lineage including Frederick Douglass, Maya Angelou, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Barack Obama, and phrases from the musical Hamilton. For poets on the sidelines, watching and cheering, like me, there were more amazing elements. She only had three weeks to write the darn thing, and an insurrection took place, which she had to suddenly include. The pressure she was under was intense. Any poet laureate will tell you that writing for an occasion is vastly different from writing a poem that comes from inside yourself. 
it's harder, and it usually doesn't turn out as well, no matter how good you are. Watching Amanda Gorman electrify us in her yellow coat, you might think she's a wunderkind, unlike anyone else. She is, and she isn't. All credit to her, and she's a bright star in a wide sky full of poets. I know the more famous black voices, but I'd never heard of Amanda, and it's not because she wasn't visible. I decided to find out what else I'd been missing. After you've looked up her work, which is all over YouTube, check out these two great anthologies that feature black poets. Anthologies are a good way to discover many voices and see which poets you'd like to read more from. If your library doesn't have them, recommend they be ordered. Just Out is African-American poetry, 250 years of struggle and song, edited by Kevin Young, which the San Francisco Chronicle said should be required reading for all Americans. Young is the current poetry editor of The New Yorker and the new director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. An older but timely one I'm exploring is Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, edited by Camille Dungy. Dungy's the new poetry editor at Orion. Have fun. Read aloud. Post the poems you like on social media. Send some love to writers you discover. Spread the good words. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this evening. If you'd like to hear it again, you can do so at our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Have a good evening.